0: The claim that all students, and especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds, lose substantial ground academically over summer vacation is among the most widely cited education research findings, and one of very few to find mainstream recognition and acceptance. Summer learning loss has become an article of faith among educators and a source of anxiety for parents and policymakers alike. But just how strong is the evidence behind summer learning loss? And does it stand the test of time? I'm Marty West, Editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Paul von Hippel, Associate Professor of Public Policy, Sociology, Statistics, and Data Science at the University of Texas at Austin. Paul's the author of the new article, Is Summer Learning Loss Real?, that will appear in the Fall 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Paul, welcome back to the Ednext Podcast.
1: Thank you. Pleased to be here.
0: Now, your article is subtitled, How I Lost Faith in One of Education Research's Classic Results, implying that at one point you were a true believer. What does it mean to be a true believer in summer learning loss, and why did those claims seem plausible to you as an education researcher?
1: Well, uh, let me start by clarifying what's meant by summer learning loss, because uh, there are really two phenomena that uh, appear under that heading. One is that most children lose month of skills over the summer so the teachers have to spend weeks or months on review in the fall. And the other claim is that poor children lose more during the summer than children who aren't poor, so that summers cause achievement gaps to grow. In fact, one study, which we'll get into a little later, reported that two-thirds of the achievement gap at the end of middle school was due to summer learning. Uh, now, I, uh, this is one of the first topics that I did research on when I got into education research back in 2004. And uh, and the claims really made a lot of sense to me. The summer break is pretty long. It's almost three months. Now, if I stop playing the piano for three months, my wife is going to close the door when I start again. If I stop exercising for three months, my clothes don't fit the same, so I can't take a three-month break and expect to pick up where I left off. So it made sense to me that kids must lose something over the summer break, I mean, although maybe not as much. My, my daughter seems to have a better memory than I do. Um, but if kids do learn something over the summer break, which kids would you expect to lose the most? it would be the kids who have the fewest resources out of school. Um, kids who have two college educated parents and well-stop bookshelves and iPads, they might be okay. They might even be better. Okay. If their parents send them to theater camp or coding camp, but kids with one high school educated parents who can't afford a fancy camp, the kind of kids who are already behind on the first day of kindergarten, it totally made sense to me that they would fall further behind when school lets out for summer.
0: And what was it then that shook your faith in summer learning loss? Well,
1: There were a few things. One is that I started reading the literature on early childhood and it's like it's describing a different world. Um, According to early childhood researchers, achievement gaps are in place by age five and they're almost as big on the first day of kindergarten as they are at the end of eighth grade. But if that's true, how can it also be true, as I believed at the time, that two-thirds of the eighth grade achievement gap accumulates during summer vacation? Either it's there at age five or it accumulates during summer vacation. can't be both. And then, of course, there's a community of researchers who try to explain achievement gaps as a product of the school system, whether they focus on segregation or school finance or tracking or teacher quality. Their common theme is that poor children are behind because they're not having the same quality experiences at school. But these narratives aren't compatible. I mean, how can achievement gaps be full-fledged at the start of kindergarten but still triple during summer vacations but still be the fault of schools? Those claims can't all be right at the same time, and yet we all kind of uh, hoe our own row and seemed to manage to, uh, uh, overlook the contradictions.
0: So findings from these other areas of research led you initially to doubt the importance of summer learning loss, but you didn't stop there. You went back to examine the evidence behind claims that summer learning loss is a major factor in achievement gaps. And you trace these claims to something called the beginning school study. What was this study and, and what did it appear to show?
1: Well, let me first say that I didn't actually have a lot of doubts at first. Um, I, uh, I noticed these contradictions kind of as I was having trouble uh, finding summer learning loss patterns in, uh, in in new data. But when I first started working on summer learning loss, I thought, these findings are going to replicate. They make so much sense. And um, I got really frustrated because I couldn't find the patterns I expected. And so gradually I, I started looking at the history and went back to look harder at one of the seminal studies on the topic, as you say, the beginning school study. The beginning school study started with over 800 first graders in 20 Baltimore public schools in the year 1982. It followed those kids from the start of first grade to the end of eighth grade in 1990, and it tested them near the beginning and end of most school years. It found that reading and math gaps approximately tripled over those eight years and that practically all the gap growth occurred during summer vacations. So poor children didn't fall behind middle-class children during the school year. Not at all but they fell behind rapidly during summer vacations. And as a result, the achievement gap was three times bigger at the start of eighth grade than it was at the start of first.
0: And this is the finding that continues to be widely cited both in the academic literature and in the popular press. I recall that Malcolm Gladwell discussed the study at length in his best-selling book, Outliers, taking its findings on summer learning loss at face value. On one hand, it makes sense to trace the idea back to its origins. On the other hand, it raises the question of whether the same patterns show up in more recent data, and that's where things start to get interesting. Where else have you looked for patterns consistent with that study, and and what have you found?
1: Yeah, I think you always need to be concerned about a finding when uh, when the main support for it Uh, that gets cited as 30 years old. If if the finding is really solid, it should be possible to replicate it in modern data, and uh, you just don't see these same kinds of patterns in modern data. If you want to look at summer learning, there are two major data sources that people use. One is the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study, which has followed two cohorts of 20,000 kindergartners. One started kindergarten in 1998, one started in 2010, uh, and the other source is uh, measures of academic progress tests that are given to children in over 8,000 schools. And neither one of these modern sources give results that look like the beginning school study. Uh, in modern data, achievement gaps don't grow dramatically over the summer. They don't grow faster during the summer than during the school year. In fact, they don't seem to grow very much at all between the start of kindergarten and at the end of eighth grade. And in the early childhood longitudinal study, it's not just that they don't grow very much. They actually even seem to shrink a little bit.
0: So one possibility, I guess, is that summer learning loss existed at one point, at least in Baltimore, and that it's simply become less important over time. But your article argues that the differences stem, at least in part, from the types of tests used in the beginning school study. How could that be the case?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's that Baltimore is a was a weird place. The 1980s were a weird time. It, it turns out that there were issues with the tests that Baltimore used at the time of the beginning school study. Um, It wasn't uh, a special test for Baltimore. Baltimore used the California Achievement Test, which was very popular nationally at the time. My elementary school in suburban Chicago used it, too, and I remember taking the California Achievement Test. The problem with the version that was used in the early 1980s at the time of the beginning school study was the way it was scored. It still used a method called Thurstone Scaling, which had been invented by Lewis Thurstone in 1928, um, and was a convenient but not very uh, psychometrically accurate way to score tests um, before personal computers. The thurstone scaled tests are the ones that showed these gaps between high and low scores growing substantially between first and eighth grade, and the beginning school study uh, showed that they grew mainly during summer. And everybody thought that that was reality. We just knew that achievement gaps grew as kids got older. But in 1985, the California achievement test switched from Fairstone scaling to item response theory scaling, which is the method that most tests use today. And the picture of reality changed radically. Uh, After the scale change, it no longer appeared that gaps grew between first and eighth grade. Instead, gaps shrank, and some of the shrinkage, this is crazy, some of the shrinkage happened over summer vacations.
0: So part of the issue seems to be the methods for scaling test scores, that is, how we translate students' answers to a set of questions into an overall score. But another aspect of the beginning school study that you discussed was its reliance on fixed form tests. What What's a fixed form test and, and why might that also matter?
1: Yeah, uh, fixed form tests, which are still very popular, uh, basically means you get a piece of paper with a set of questions on it. And everybody gets the same questions if they're in the same grade. So you have a single set of questions for first grade, the same for all first graders. And um, in the beginning school study, they were the same at the beginning of the years at the end. And you know, all the kids leave for summer vacation, and when they came back, they took the second grade test, which had different questions. But think about what that means. You're giving a different test at the end of the summer than at the beginning, and what that means is that if the scores are different at the end of the summer, it's hard to know what that means. Does it tell you something about summer learning, or does it just reflect the fact that the test has changed? You really can't tell, and that's a problem. And it wasn't just a problem for the beginning school study. Uh, practically all studies that were done at that time, all studies reviewed in the 1996 meta-analysis that people still cite regarding uh, summer learning loss, all those studies use fixed form tests. So they gave different tests at the end of the summer than at the beginning, and you just don't know if their conclusions about summer learning are really conclusions about summer learning or just tell you that test forms were changing at the end of the summer.
0: Now, the modern testing programs that you referred to earlier, the early childhood longitudinal study and the MAP test, They no longer use fixed forms, as I understand it, but rather are adaptive. That is, they ask harder questions after students give correct answers and easier questions after students give incorrect answers. And in theory, this makes it much easier to pinpoint exactly what students know and therefore how their knowledge might have changed over the summer. So when we look across these different modern testing programs, we might expect that their findings would line up with one another and provide a consistent picture is, is that what you found as you look across these different modern testing programs
1: yeah unfortunately no i, I was very help, hopeful that you know since we've learned a lot about scaling tests and um uh we're doing a better job of it and we're giving adaptive tests i was hoping that we would have a consistent picture today but we don't it turns out that even adaptive well-scaled tests don't provide a consistent picture of summer learning the early childhood longitudinal studies don't agree with the measures of academic progress, at least when it comes to summer learning. So according to the early childhood longitudinal studies, summer learning loss, it looks like a trivial thing. Uh, on average, it looks like students learn maybe two weeks of skills over the summer, and in one summer, they actually gain a little bit in math. But according to the measures of academic progress, summer learning loss is much more serious. And on average, it looks like children lose two or three months of reading and math skills over every summer between uh, um, years of elementary school. So why don't these two, uh, really excellent data sources agree on what summer learning loss is something wrong with one of them. I don't, I don't know. And I haven't met anybody else who knows either.
0: So when even the best modern tests provide somewhat different answers concerning the importance of summer learning loss, we might be tempted to throw up our hands. And in fact, you write in the article that the problem could be serious or it could be trivial children might lose a third of a year's learning over summer vacation or they might tread water achievement gaps might grow faster over the summer or they might not despite that uncertainty do you think the available evidence at least allows us to draw some stronger conclusions
1: yeah I I think we can uh draw a few stronger conclusions first I think we probably need to stop saying that two-thirds of the eighth grade achievement cap is due to summer vacations it sure looked that way in the beginning school study 35 years ago, but I don't know of a single data set collected in the past 20 years that supports that statement. And second, we should take early childhood scholars seriously when they say that most achievement gaps form before the age of five. Um, tests don't entirely agree on how much gaps change after children start school and how much of that changes happens during summers and how much happens during during the school years, but on every test I've looked at, most of the gap is present on, most, on the first day of kindergarten. Um, with respect to inequality, whatever happens during the school years and summers in elementary and middle school, it looks like it's not as important as what happened in the first five years of life. So we need to take early childhood research very seriously. The third thing is that there's, there's one fact about summer that's so obvious, it's easy to overlook. In fact, we probably didn't need research to establish it. And that fact is that nearly all children, no matter how advantaged they are, learn much more slowly during summer vacations than they do during the school years. And that means that every summer offers children who are behind a chance to catch up. So even if it's not true that gaps grow a lot during summer vacations, summer vacations still offer a chance to shrink
0: them. So if summer vacation does provide that opportunity. What, in your view, is the best way to capitalize on it?
1: Well, there are three options uh, that people talk about. One is summer learning programs, one is extended school years, and one is year-round calendars. So I'll, uh, I'll start with extended school years. Extended school years are – school years that offer a lot more days of instruction than uh, traditional calendars do. So traditional calendar offers about 170 to 180 days of instruction. Extended school years are more like 210. And that typically means that the school year stretches into the summer, and maybe there's some Saturday instruction, too. These kind of calendars are very rare among traditional public schools, but they're part of the recipe that makes certain charter chains, uh, most famously KIPP, as effective as they are. Um, Extended school years are easy to mix up with something called a year-round calendar, which is more popular and not as effective. Uh, Year-round calendars also extend into the summer, but they don't offer any more instruction days than regular calendars. They just take the usual 178, uh, 170, 180 school days and spread them out more evenly across the seasons. Uh, I reviewed the evidence on year-round calendars in 2015, and it was clear they had no benefits for achievement. Kids don't get any more instruction than they do on traditional calendars, so they don't learn anymore. It's, It's really that simple. And then the the third option is to have a special summer learning program, a program that's uh, not really part of the regular school year, but uh, something that kids can show up into the summer. And I like some summer learning programs, and a few of them are are backed by strong evidence now. A recurring challenge that they have is that um, many of them are optional and kids don't attend regularly, which reduces the benefit. And unfortunately, the kids who have the least regular attendance are probably the kids who need the programs most. So I think we need to think harder about making summer learning programs mandatory or otherwise irresistible to kids who are behind.
0: Yeah, I know there's some interesting work going on right now, even by some of my colleagues at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, trying to (laughs) communicate with families over the summer and sort of uh, support, nudge, scaffold uh, their own work at home with students in order to try and keep them making progress academically over the summer. So maybe that's a half step between making Learning programs mandatory and doing nothing at all.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I've seen some nice results coming out of um, uh, coming out of summer reading programs that are conducted at home, uh, and, and they do come out of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I, I think it's important to remember we should we should have appropriately scaled expectations for these kind of programs. Back when I believed that two thirds of the achievement gap was due to summer vacations, I thought summer learning programs should have huge effects. Uh, they seem to have modest effects. Uh, they're, they're there, but they're not nearly as large as they, they probably would be if summer learning gaps were huge. Um, and so it tends to take several summers to really accumulate uh, a, a meaningful effect from a summer learning program. that effectively really takes a bite out of the achievement gap.
0: My guest today has been Paul von Hippel, associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin and author of Is Summer Learning Loss Real? Available now at educationnext.org. Paul, thanks for being part of the podcast.
1: Thanks, it was really interesting talking with you.
0: And, appropriately enough, this episode on summer learning loss marks the end of the 2018-19 season of the Ednext podcast and the start of our own summer vacation. We'll be back in August to discuss the results of the 2019 Education Next poll, so be sure to stay subscribed. And in the meantime, you can prevent any slowdown of your own learning by checking out our archive, where every episode we've recorded is available now for download. Have a great summer and talk to you in August.